And uh, good morning to all of you. We're glad you've come to join us today. The passage that Dawson just read describes how Paul and Silas went to two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, and the exact same thing happened in both cities. There were some who heard the gospel, believed it, and entered into life. There are others who rejected it and became hostile and aggressive against the gospel. And so this passage illustrates a very simple reality. We've seen it repeatedly through Acts, namely that people respond to the gospel in radically different ways. I suspect won't get any, any argument here. That's people respond to the same message in radically different ways. And our hope and in, in the Bible, the hope is not a wish, but it's a confidence about the future. Our hope is that many people will believe the gospel, but it's a sober hope because we know that many others will not believe the gospel. And that, of course, was true when Jesus walked the earth. It's true in the book of Acts. It's true in our day as well. Maybe you're like me. You grew up with, with siblings we all had the same exposure to the same message. We all had the same basic upbringing. Some believe, some do not. We see that in families. We see that in our friend groups. We see it just in every context. Now, as we'll see, that reality doesn't suggest a type of determinism where we just throw up our hands and say, well, God will do what God will do. I guess we have no control. It doesn't matter what we say or what we do. No. Absolutely not. What we're going to see is that there is a pathway to faith through the gospel and through the scriptures more broadly. And so if you're a follower of Christ, we have this, uh, this opportunity, this privilege really of holding forth this offer of truth to people. If you're not yet a believer, you can engage your will, you can engage your mind, you can study, you can discuss and see if this gospel is worth believing. You, you really can. And we're going to talk about that this morning. And so wherever you are spiritually, this, this passage is relevant for you. And so in Acts 15, uh, 17, 1 through 15, Luke emphasizes three things in relation to this reality that people respond in radically different ways. We're going to first of all notice the importance of communicating the gospel. Then we're going to notice the response of believing the gospel and then the response of rejecting the gospel. We see that in, in both cities, Thessalonica and Berea. First of all, the importance of communicating the gospel. And so in both of these cities, Paul and Silas followed their normal pattern, which was go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. So they went to the synagogue where they taught about Christ. And notice the, the verbs that are used in verses 2 and 3 describe how, how uh, Paul wasn't, wasn't content in just sending, just communicating words. He wanted to persuade people. And so we read this, <clears throat> Acts 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So first of all, he reasoned. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so first of all, he reasoned. There was conversation, there was dialogue, there was this give and take. And it says that he was explaining and proving to them. And that word proving is interesting because it's found in the previous chapter. And surprisingly, it's when the Philippian jailer set food before them. 
And so proving is, is similar to spreading, making, having a spread, showing people what is offered, uh, making it appealing, and seeing if you will partake of this. And so that was what Paul was doing with the gospel. And his methodology reinforces that the Christian faith is reasonable and coherent. It really is. It can be examined. It can be studied. It can be evaluated to see if it is worth believing. And since Paul believed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that it alone communicates how sinful human beings can have a relationship with a holy God, he persuaded people. He was was fervent in the way that he talked with people about this message. And the message had two basic points, and this uh, obviously is a summary of what Paul said. But two basic points, and the first point was that he argued from the Scriptures, so it wasn't just raw logic, it was from the Scriptures, that it is necessary, meaning essential, it wasn't optional, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, in the first century, nobody was looking for a crucified Messiah. Nobody understood that the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah was the same figure as the descendant of David who would reign on his throne forever. Uh, in retrospect, after the death and resurrection of Christ, it's, it's apparent. But in the first century, it was hiding in plain sight. Nobody knew that that was the case. And so Paul reasoned from the scriptures and he explained how Jesus had to die for our sins, that Christ had to suffer to pay for the sins of humanity, and he had to rise from the dead so that he could be the Davidic king who would, would, uh, would be declared the Lord and who would reign forever. And so that's the gospel that you can either receive or reject. And his point number two there is that Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, And so this is what we proclaim week after week after week, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, and he was vindicated by being risen from the dead and declared the Lord, and he will reign forever. He will one day return, and he will reign forever. And so that's the gospel that that we have the opportunity to receive or to reject. And what what, uh, Luke describes and emphasizes in the rest of this passage is that in Thessalonica and Berea, these two cities, some believed and others rejected the gospel. And as we go through this passage, uh, identify where you are along this spectrum. Have you received the gospel? Do you believe in Jesus? Is he your treasure in this life and in the next? Or have you rejected him and said, no, I will not bow the knee I will not, I do not accept that I'm so sinful that he had to die for me. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. And understand that, that just where you are now is not where you have to end up. Paul started out rejecting the gospel, but he ended up following, falling in love with Jesus Christ. And you may be somewhere in between now. You haven't rejected it, haven't accepted it, but you're considering it. <clears throat> and you can stay undecided, undeclared for a while but not forever. Uh, Eventually, if you don't accept the gospel implicitly, you are rejecting it. Well, let's notice the response of believing the gospel. In verse 4, Luke tells us how some in Thessalonica believed, 
Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so whereas only some of the Jews in the synagogue were persuaded uh, and became genuine disciples, a great many Gentiles were persuaded. And so Luke is telling us that the fruit came primarily from the Gentiles. And he mentions that there were Greeks and also uh, not a few, meaning many, of the leading women. And so by mentioning Jews, Gentiles, leading women, Luke is showing that the gospel cuts across all racial and social boundaries. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone. We'll return to verses 5 through 9 in a few minutes, but let's notice the response in the next city, the response of believing in Berea. And uh, as we read, after their lives are threatened in, in Thessalonica, we read in verse 10, And the brothers, meaning the church, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So he says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And that word noble, uh, originally, it meant literally that they were from nobility. But it came to have this metaphorical meaning of being noble-minded or being noble in character. And that was the case here. Whereas the Jews in Thessalonica, they were small-minded and they were jealous. The Jews in in, in Berea, they were noble-minded. The only thing they cared about was the truth. They wanted to know, is it true what this Paul is telling us? And so they received the word. They examined it to see if the things that Paul was, was, was saying were true. They received it with eagerness as opposed to apathy or obligation. And they examined. They actively engaged their minds, their wills. They studied the scriptures to see if the things Paul said lined up with the ancient texts that they had heard from the childhood in the Hebrew scriptures. And many of them concluded that Paul had indeed taught them accurately. He had shown them something from the Hebrew Bible that they did not see. And so in verse 12, we read that many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So as well as, so whereas some of the Jews in Thessalonica believed, many believed in Berea, along with Greek women of high standing as well as men. So again, Jews, Greeks, women of high standing, they all came to faith in Christ. Why? Because they examined the scripture. This became a front burner issue for them. They weren't passive. They examined the scripture to see if these things were so. That's the pathway to faith for anybody who really wants to to believe. And that's the way it normally happens. You know, this is not some rare exception. You know, one of the privileges I have as a pastor is that I often get to talk to people about their walk with God. And I'll often turn to someone and say, "Uh, tell me your story. How, How have you come to faith in Christ? if you have. In the past couple of weeks, I talked to two different young women who, who told me, essentially, I came to Christ because I started reading the Bible 
with a Christian that I met. They were both K-State students at the time, or one was and one wasn't, a different university. But they they grew up around church. They grew up hearing about Jesus, but it was only when they took the time to examine the Scripture and study it and talk about it with somebody that they came to faith in Christ. And that's the way it normally happens. That's the way my Jewish mother came to Christ. After she graduated from college, she moved back to Chattanooga. Somebody invited her to a church, and she started studying the Bible with her pastor. And lo and behold, she saw from the Old Testament that Jesus is the one. He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He's the descendant of David. And she came to faith in Christ. That's how I came to Christ when I was in college. These guys invited me, hey, you want to play basketball on Friday afternoon? Hey, do you want to hang out at my apartment? Hey, how about you join us for a Bible study? Really slick here, really, how this happened. But I entered in, I started studying the Bible, and man, I found my treasures, the pearl of great price, worth any more than anything else in this world. So absolutely, I'm all in when it comes to Jesus. I was talking to my dear friend Nyla this, this, uh, this week, and she reminded me that 30 years ago that she and John, they came to a Bible study in our home. We, we had a marriage study, and then we said, well, we're done with that. What should we study next? Well, how about we study the book of Romans? And uh, John and Nyla would tell you that uh, it was the first time they really heard about grace, that the gospel, you, you are saved by grace through faith. It's an offer. It's a gift. All you have to do is receive it by faith. And they both came to believe John walked with Christ through this life, and he's into the the next. He's with his Savior, and Nyla is walking with Christ to this day. This is how it happened. And many of you came to Christ the exact same way. Maybe in your home, you were taught the scriptures. You were taught it in Sunday school, and you believed as a child. Or maybe you believed in high school. Or maybe you believed when you you went to the university or later in life. But this is the way it happens. We come to faith as we examine the gospel and the scriptures more broadly. This doesn't happen by faith. It's not like catching a cold. It's not like you say, wow, I think I'm getting some sniffles. Sniffles, maybe it's Christianity. You know, maybe that's what's coming on. No, it doesn't happen that way. We read in, in Romans ten seventeen. so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so I would tell you, if you're not yet a believer and you are open to the possibility that there is life in Jesus Christ, I would urge you, I would plead with you, imitate the Bereans, examine the scriptures. Don't make this a back burner issue. There is too much at stake. Make it a front burner issue. Read the scriptures. Ideally, read it with a Christian, with somebody who already knows Christ. If you know somebody, take a risk and say, hey, would you read the Bible with me? Just talk about it. If you don't know a Christian that you feel comfortable reading with, um, and this might be the scariest thing you've done in a decade, but let us know. Take the connection card there. Put your name and contact information. Just write Bible on the back, and we'll know what that means. And we will provide somebody to read the Bible with you, somebody safe, a humble person, somebody who knows God, somebody who would just love more than anything else just to help you come to a place where you understand what is offered to you through Christ. No pressure whatsoever. But that's that's a that's our recommendation. That's our plea with you. And you may be thinking, who can afford to take the time 
invest the energy to read the Bible, talk about it, discuss it. Can I really afford that? Well, we are all busy, important people. But I would say a better question is how can you afford not to examine the Scripture in light of what's at stake? Your eternal destiny is at stake. If God sent his unique son to die for your sins, you should want to scout this out. You should want to know if that's the case. And so there's a path to faith if you will take it. Now, I also want to mention, and then we'll move on, that, that if you want to learn how you can be a person who reads the Bible with people who want to come to faith, uh, stay tuned. We're going we're to offer a group this fall. It's led by one of our missionaries that's been serving in Asia for a long time. But it's, it's, it's going to be a group that just talks about how it can be helpful to people reading the Bible in this way. And so the fact that some will believe the gospel, it should give us hope. Um, we, we should be confident that people will come to Christ. The gospel is a power of God for salvation. But it's a sober hope because some will reject the gospel. And so let's notice the response of rejecting the gospel. We'll go back to each city, Thessalonica and Berea. After some were um, persuaded by the gospel in Thessalonica, Luke, Luke describes how others rejected, and not just rejected, but they opposed the gospel in a very aggressive way. <clears throat> Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and the rabble would have been, that's the bad crowd, okay, people that don't mind committing felonies. They they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason was the man who was hosting Paul and Silas, and so they went to his house thinking that they would find them there. Verse 6, but when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so their basic accusation is that these Christians are bad for a stable society. They cause political and social turmoil wherever they go all across the Roman Empire. And this is an accusation. If you read the second half of the book of Acts, you'll find this repeated in, in various ways in different cities where the gospel went. And that's what, that's what the accusation was. Christianity is bad for a stable society. And that's an accusation that's made in our day as well, that uh, we would be better without religion in general, without Christianity in particular, okay? Let that accusation not be true. Let it not be true of us because we're not following what the scripture teaches about how we should live in society. And we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But it wasn't a compliment when they said of Paul and Silas that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Again, they were accusing Paul and Silas of being troublemakers everywhere they went. And similarly, they accused Paul and Silas of, quote, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus. And this is an accusation that Jesus was made of Jesus in, in Luke 23, 2. 
They said, Jesus is misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And that accusation is understandable. It's misguided, but it's understandable. We said earlier, nobody in the first century thought that the Messiah was going to be a king who was crucified. They all understood that, that, the, that the Christ was going to be a king who would come in, who would overthrow the Romans, their tyranny, the taxes, their injustices, and they would deliver Israel, and Israel would finally be free again. And so when Paul said that Jesus is the Christ, that's what a lot of people heard. Oh, so he is a military political figure who's going to deliver us. And so it was a convenient accusation that the Jewish leaders knew would cause a reaction. <clears throat> now, what's fascinating is that if you read Romans 13, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. If you read that passage, it's shocking how... how uh, um, how supportive Paul was of governing authorities. And he wrote that to the Romans, so he was talking about Caesar when he said that we should submit to governing authorities because they are ministers of God. And so Paul would say, no, we should not be like uh, people who cause riots and, and go around causing trouble. Uh, Paul didn't have the chance to answer this accusation, but if he did, I think Paul would say something like this. The accusation that Christians say that you shouldn't obey Caesar, you should obey Jesus. He's our king. I think Paul would say something like, Jesus is our king, okay? And one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and Christ. But until that day, in this age, we're going to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we're also going to give to Jesus what is his alone. And if you make us choose, we will be loyal to Jesus. And if there are consequences, we will gladly suffer the consequences for Jesus, our King. And so that's what Paul teaches in, in, in his writings. We read in verse 10 that the believers in Thessalonica they sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when Paul wrote back to the church at Thessalonica, he described this as being torn away from them, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and following. But we read this in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there to agitating and stirring up the crowd. So isn't it ironic that the people that accused Paul and his, his band of apostles, he, that the people that accused him of turning the world upside down, they were the one that were, ones that were organizing mobs. They were the ones that were stirring up the city. They were the ones that were causing these violent, these violent protests in the street. Well, verse 14 tells us that the threat to Paul was so serious that the believers immediately sent Paul away. And he went all the way to Athens, and from Athens he would send for Paul, for uh, Silas and Timothy to come. And next week we'll see what Paul's experience and teaching was in, in Athens. But it's been said that in this section of Acts, Paul is more like a fugitive than a missionary. He is on the run for his life. And that's because of the reality that many people reject the gospel and some will become hostile 
toward its messengers. And so, in Paul's day and in ours, people respond to the gospel in radically different ways. We've seen that illustrated. Uh, But what's our responsibility? Okay, I suspect we all agree with this statement. But what is our responsibility? If that's the reality, what does God expect of us to do? How should we think about ourselves, given the fact that some people will love our message and our gospel and others will hate it? Well, I think one of the, perhaps the most fascinating passage where Paul addresses this very directly is in 2 Corinthians 2. And Paul gives this, this imagery of a, a, a triumphal procession. And the imagery is this, is that it's a conquering king, and he's at the first of this procession, perhaps riding on a horse. And behind the, behind the king are the victorious troops, and behind them are the people who have been taken captive. And as this procession goes through the streets of the city, there are others who are burning incense, and they're burning spices. And so there's this aroma that's wafting out into the streets. Now, as you think about that imagery, out of all the details in there, what do you think Paul said that he and his, his companions were? Well, Paul says, we are the aroma. Okay? This is what he said, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And so just like in that Roman triumphal procession, some would have smelled the aroma and thought, victory, this is the sweet smell of victory. And others would have smelled the stench of death because they had been conquered and defeated. And in the same way, Paul said, we are the aroma of Christ. To some people, it's this sweet fragrance that leads to life. And others who reject it, it's the fragrance of death. And so it's a sobering thing to realize that people make decisions with eternal consequences based on how they experience us and how they experience what we speak, how we think and speak and act. And Paul asks this question. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Who can accurately represent Christ that way with such a a, a burdensome responsibility of representing him accurately? And in the next chapter, he answers the question in 3.5. He says, we are not sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. And so they trusted that God would make him sufficient through the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, through prayer, through fellowship, through all these disciplines of the Christian life. And so what is our responsibility in light of what we've talked about today? Our responsibility is to be the aroma of Christ. As the body of Christ, we are to accurately represent Jesus so that when people experience us, 
they experience Jesus accurately. So they will not only hear the words of the gospel, they do need to hear that, but they will also experience who Jesus is, how he relates to them, what he values, what is important in this life and the next. And so if it's our responsibility to be the aroma of Christ, uh, I would just ask you, how do people experience you? Honestly, day in and day out. Do you think people experience you as the aroma of Christ? For better or worse, do they experience you as the aroma of Christ? So how do you even get at that? Well, you could take the teachings of Christ, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, from 5 through 7, and read a, a, a teaching and say, do I embody this? And so, for example, let me just give you some examples. Uh, would people say that you and I hunger and thirst after righteousness? Would you say, that's what we're thirsty for, that's what we hunger for, is the righteousness of God? Or... Would they say, no, actually, they hunger and thirst for power and recognition and worldly goods? Or again, would people say, do people experience us as the light of the world where we shine forth our good works? We don't show off, but we are appropriately, appropriately transparent to where people see in us, this is, this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is how we live this is what we think is important in this life. I mean, are we the light of the world or are we stealth Christians? Nobody has any idea. We are followers of Christ. Or again, are we quick to reconcile with others when we've been angry and insulting? Or do we justify our anger out of self-righteousness? You know, Jesus assumed that we would blow it, that we would sin, that we would not always get it right. And so we talked about reconciliation. And so we're to model redemption, not perfection. Do people experience that? Oh, that's what Christians do when they get it wrong. Or here's another one. This is incredibly convicting. When people experience us, do they see us loving our enemies? and praying for them, not against them, loving our enemies and praying for them? Or do people normally see us trash-talking our, our enemies and just condemning them? Well, again, we could go on and on, but you get the idea. We are the aroma of Christ when we embody his teachings. And so if you, if you ever wonder does it really matter, honestly, does it really matter if I walk with Christ this week? The answer from the scriptures is absolutely. We are the body of Christ. People are going to make conclusions about him based on how they experience us. And so may we be the aroma of Christ. May we be true disciples of Jesus. There's no shortcuts here. This is a matter of walking with Christ daily. And if you walk with Christ daily, you will have opportunities that are off the charts. You will be so different from, from the world around you that you will have opportunities to, to represent him, sharing Christ in word and deed. Heavenly Father, this is a burdensome thing, and we declare with Paul, who is adequate for these things? 
uh, surely not in our ourselves, in our flesh. And so we're asking that you would empower us as the body of Christ to be this aroma of Christ. God, this is our calling, and so we gladly accept it. And we believe that what you call us to do, you empower us to do. And so we ask that you would give us uh, fresh faith and desire and uh, motivation to walk with you. We pray we'd recognize these opportunities. God, we pray for those in our midst who do not yet believe or who are wavering in their faith. We do pray, God, that each one would be like the Bereans, examining and uh, turning over and uh, searching out, is this the truth? Is this worth, worthy of all of my energy and my life? And God, we pray that they might find faith and enter into life. God, may we be a church that welcomes people, all different places spiritually, and uh, help each one become a true disciple. That's our desire, and so we pray for the grace to live this out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Your presence 
Jesus, Jesus, my heart will sing no other name. Jesus, Jesus. In our time singing a mighty fortress is our God, declaring our victory in Him today. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And our helper, He amidst the blood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient to work us woe, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? And did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be The man of God's own choosing Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus, it is He The Lord of hosts, His name From age to age the same And He must win the battle Enemy is real, but we have victory over Him and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, and we will not fear, for God hath the will, tis truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, doom is sure one little word shall fail 